So what happens over some days when we are in retreat, in silence, particularly in nature, and our mind and heart and body slows down enough to become more sensitive, more receptive, more aware, more awake, then we start to feel a deeper attunement, a sensitivity, deeper listening, and what would normally, ordinarily pass us by, that we wouldn't give much attention to, has a different poignance, presence. For example, the shaft of light coming through here, illuminating these grasses, these decaying grasses. Just as the Buddha was pointing to this the flower in that teaching, there's something when we're quiet enough we, we can feel or sense there's, a, there's an immediacy or a suchness or an aliveness or a, words, words fall away but there's something that we feel kinesthetically, energetically, intuitively, maybe is a better word, where we feel everything is alive with presence, with consciousness, with vitality. Everything is singing the song of the Dhamma. Everything is illuminating the truth of things. It's a teaching poem from Chinese poet Han Shan who writes, If you look for the truth outside of yourself, it gets further and further away. Today, walking alone, I meet her everywhere I step. She is the same as me, yet I am not her. Only if you understand things in this way will you merge with the way things are. So if we look for the truth out of anywhere but here, we're looking in the wrong place. We're barking up the wrong tree. Truth, presence, emptiness, awakening is right here. It's not somewhere different. But in our ordinary busy mind, busy life, busy mode, it seems a million miles away. We're caught up mostly in egoic activity, egoic thinking, with a very strong sense of self, me, separate from other, from the world. There's me and my life and my projects. And there's a lot of selfing. Bhavana, the Buddha called it, the, um, becoming, becoming somebody in this world. And 
And in the silence and the stillness and the presence of the natural world, we can sense into something maybe a little different, a little subtler, quieter, more profound, more empty of self and selfing and that whole dualism that we can live in. So I spoke the other night about the various qualities that can arise with nature practice. Presence, mindfulness, awareness, joy, a lot of beautiful heart qualities. But that's just one layer of the experience. And the second layer is really the insights, understanding and the wisdom that arises in being in, in nature with this contemplative awareness. third layer of experience that arises, which maybe speak to tomorrow, is the blossoming of the heart into love, into connection, non-separation. And then the fourth layer that I'll speak to later is the aspiration that arises out of that, or one aspiration that arises out of that, which is to become an earth steward and to do what one can to care and protect the earth. So right now I want to talk about the second layer of insight, understanding, wisdom that comes from this practice very liberating, very freeing. So as I, that Ute prayer that I read the other day, the whole world is alive with teachings, teach, wisdom teachings, teaching the truth about the elemental truths of experience. And so we learn about these in Buddhism and different wisdom traditions, but we can actually very easily, contactfully, viscerally experience them here in the wild. And one of the, the primary things that we encounter and feel and work with is change, transience, impermanence, uncertainty, unreliability, undependability, this fundamental law of experience and of the universe that everything changes, nothing stays the same, no two moments identical. And we see that in the weather, one minute we're roasting in the sun, the next minute we're 
freezing because the clouds come and the wind whips up. You see that flow of the elements that we were exploring. Fire element, water element, times dry, sometimes wet. The earth element, this body, this field of sensation and sensitivity, always changing. Momentarily comfortable, and then hungry, or thirsty, or achy, or hot, or cold, or or something. Tired, restless, over-caffeinated, anxious. And we look around this landscape. Here we are in this beautiful fall season. Like like those aspen trees, they're they're turning gold before our eyes. They were dark green when we came. And suddenly there's these gold medallions everywhere dripping from the trees. Law of change. These grasses. And I came here in June. It was the most abundant deep green, lush wildflower meadows. The most lush I've ever seen it because of the late snow and the rain. Profoundly beautiful and then beautiful in its own way as it transitions. Energy sap dries up and we move into fall and winter. Leaves on the trees, the Everywhere you look, there's both uh, flourishing and decaying. The grasses are alive and dying. The trees are blooming and shedding their leaves. So, you know, we in our in our cities, in our buildings, and we. Uh, you know, so much of our civilized structures are an attempt to mitigate entropy and decay. Right? And those of you who are homeowner know this, right? Your home, your home is in permanent state of decay <laughs> that you temporarily patch it up and replace the dry rot and the wet rot and the whatever it is that's decaying this month, you know, decay of the month. Oh, we've got holes in the rafters. Okay, now we've got a leaky roof. And so our, 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 our urban lives, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the attempt is to sort of create order in, in the chaos and, and solidity in the, in the changeability and permanence in the decay so we don't we, we don't live and breathe that vital changing transient moment to moment change because in our, you know houses sort of look the same and the walls sort of look the same and the buildings sort of look the same and car sort of looks the same and things seem to be solid and reliable you will go home after this retreat and have the expectation your house will sort of be there and be sort of how you left it. The garden's wilted a little bit. So we're not reminded 
so much of transience. But we, when we, the more we spend time in nature, whether it's gardening, hiking, living close to the land, we feel it viscerally. Oh, it's the way of things. It's natural things change, decay, rot, die, pass away, transform, rebirth, regrow, regenerate. And so, one of the, the potent uh, things that happen as we spend a week or longer in this contemplative presence outside is these teachings, we imbibe them viscerally. It's not like we sit around going, ooh, change, ooh, impermanence, Things are passing, rising, passing. No, we just, the whole thing is a show of movement, change, transience. And so we feel it in our bones. Oh, right, there's a naturalness to that. There's a naturalness to seasons, to slowing down, to entropy, to decay, and in spring to regeneration. And we find a certain beauty in that. And I've, I've, I've reflected for many years, what is it that we find movement in nature so enthralling? We could spend hours looking at clouds move across the landscape. Or we can spend hours watching waves just come and go on the shoreline. And there's something very captivating about change. And I think it's partly because it speaks to both our evolutionary heritage, but also there's something soothing about the naturalness of that, aside from the aesthetics of it. You know, not so long ago, ancestors spent a lot of time just gazing at clouds, or the sea, or the moving river, or leaves fluttering. And I was teaching, I was teaching in a company not so long ago, and this woman who's got teenage kids, she said, "I feel so sad for my kids when I grew up, because we didn't have devices, phones. We spent a lot of time just looking at stuff. We'd sit in the garden, just look at the trees, or look at the sky, and like just look. And they don't look at nature anymore; they're looking at their screen. It's one of the many losses." And so we don't learn from this landscape. And so one feature of that changing landscape is what we encountered yesterday, the skeleton of the, whether it's an elk or a cow, probably an elk, confronted with death. There's a lot of death in the natural world, it's part of the cycle. We don't see so much death in our urban lives. It's punted away in hospitals and (coughs) crematoriums and um, swept away and pruned away. Come outside, there's a lot of death. Skulls, it's beautiful, majestic, ponderosa. 
I've been coming here for 27 years and it's <laughs> still here. <laughs> it's like, it's remarkable. Like it's almost, you know, eaten out from the inside and yet here it is standing and, and, and beautiful in its death, beautiful in its decay. It's a, it's a, in the summer, it's a um, harbor for many birds and nesting beings. So we see the naturalness. We don't go, oh, it's kind of messy. We should, you know, tidy it up and you know, chop it down. And it's all right. Like the cycle of things: birth, old age, decay, death, rebirth. So it's very instructive to to look at that. I, I, I think it's a useful practice to turn one's attention to that which is dying. Because it's part of life. When I, when I see roadkill or dead animals or birds or insects, or really take it in. All right, death is part of the life cycle. I don't think it's going to happen to me. I'm going to be the only one who gets through this life without dying. And that's sort of how we, you know, we sort of live our lives in a certain way. And so there's a beautiful sobriety about reflecting on mortality. It can also be anxiety-provoking, but there's also a poignance to it. This is, the, you know, the, the Dharma means the natural law so when we come, when we do nature practice, it confronts us with the natural laws of things. Change, death, uncertainty, right? We come outside, what I love about nature retreats, I can have the best plan in the world for what I'm going to do, and then, oh, look, it's raining. You know, we were meditating up the hill last year. I was looking, it was like this, there's a few clouds, I think we'll be good to lunch. And then the clouds came during the meditation and we weren't even halfway through the meditation and it was like an inch of hailstones. <laughs> it just went... It's like, okay, I think we need to change the plan. <laughs> Uncertainty, unreliability. Right? So which forces us back on ourselves to ask, where do we take refuge in if life is uncertain and changing and unreliable and undependable. Have you found anyone or anything that's dependable in this life? People can be sort of dependable, but only sort of, because they also die or they change. So what do we take refuge in in this reality of uncertainty and change? I like to share this story of I used to lead kayaking retreats up in Alaska. They were very profound um, before the last crash, economic crash. And um, we would be up there in the summer, July, which was the height of the pink salmon run in this particular part of the southeast Alaska. And 
55 million salmon uh, returning to their spawning grounds after three years of migration. And uh, it's just profound. The whole sea is jumping with salmon. And they're marching upstream up the estuaries, up the rivers to procreate and to die. It's this profound march of life and death. And it's sort of mind-stopping to, to feel the both the cycles and the power of this, this life, this how generative and self-sacrificing and also uh, a cycle of life and death. All 55 million of those salmon, you know, probably by September, no longer alive. It's profound. It's profound to witness that. So to take some time here to attend to both change, to the reality of death, what that says about our own mortality. It's a line from the Mahabharatas, a great Indian text. And there's a question, I forget who's asking the question. It says, what is the most wondrous thing in this world and the answer is people looking around at other people uh, who are sick and dying and thinking it won't happen to them. So it's you know, Dharma teachings are reminding us to wake up to our mortality, the preciousness, not, not as a morbid uh, endeavor, but to wake us up. We don't know how many summers we have left. We don't know if this will be our last time at this beautiful wilderness ranch. I've been coming for 27 years, but I don't know if there's a 28th. I can't know that. I would like to think there is. I'm on the schedule. If that means it must be true. <laughs> how many summers do we have left? How many full moons will we see? Not so many. But what's true is we don't know how many. How many autumn, golden autumn seasons will we have the privilege to bear witness to? Well, if I don't know, I better pay attention because it might be the last one. So what else do we see when we come into nature with presence is we see uh, the intimate interdependence, intimate interconnection with life. And although we live mostly with an illusion of separateness, of being sep feeling separate, feeling independent, feeling autonomous, feeling we have ultimate agency. We see there's many, many, many myriad ways that we're conditioned, 
But when we're outdoors, we see how much we're conditioned. Just notice what happens when the sun goes behind the cloud. It has an impact. We like it, we don't like it. It affects our mood, affects our temperature, affects our emotions, affects our perception. Try not drinking for a few hours up here. See, we'll see how intimately dependent we are on water. And the body will tell you because you'll get a headache. As I'm getting right now as I say that. <laughs> So this water is from the spring, which is up, you know, it's actually past that middle house. And um, we are mostly water, as you know. And so we are now three days on the mountain, three days hydrating from the spring. So I don't know how long it takes to pee out all of the previous fluids you've ever drank and be replaced by Viacito's spring water, but possibly after a week, more of your body mass is Viacito's lots of perceptual delusions including drinking and eating things and excreting them and sort of feeling like it doesn't really have much to do with me. I'm just me, separate. I walk through the forest, doesn't have much to do with me. But that's not true. We're intimately independent. Try not breathing for a few minutes. See how utterly dependent we are on breath, on oxygen. I just read that our bodies are made up of 18% calcium, earth element. We come from the earth, we eat the earth, we are the earth, we're not separate. Lying on the earth today, lying meditation, maybe some of you felt a little more like, oh, this body is of the earth. It's a moving part of the Earth's surface. How many of you think that you're part of the Earth's surface? It's not how we perceptually hold, we hold ourselves as we're on the Earth and as if the Earth is something different from us. But, you know, a hawk sitting up there looking down at this especially when you're all lying down looking like we just had a nuclear holocaust or something. (laughs) And the hawks just, from that perspective, just, oh, it's just more beings on the earth, of the earth. 
And if we'd done that long enough, we would have had a few buzzards flying around like, oh, this looks really good news. <laughs> So, you know, if you sit long enough in meditation, that does happen sometimes. It happens to me in California. The turkey vultures are like, oh, check it out. <laughs> Hasn't moved for two hours. <laughs> so letting, letting yourself feel into that sense of interweaving, interdependence, interconnection as a visceral lived experience. When we eat out this delicious, outrageously delicious food, like being aware of taking in the earth, eating the earth, eating the earth element, and sensing it becoming just metamorphosizing into another part of the earth. So another thing that can arise as we spend time outside is um, we tend to let go of our ideas or views about perfection and imperfection. Like when we look at that dead Ponderosa, there's a certain kind of acceptance we have with nature for the most part. We don't think, ah, oh, I could do with a little trim, a little chubby on the bo- bottom, need a little haircut. And then we're just like, oh, it's just as it is. There's a certain kind of perfection in things, perfectly imperfect. And we're generally so judgmental, critical, high standards with ourselves, with each other, for sure. And yet, when we're outside, that, 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 perfectionistic, judgmental, critiquing, unless, unless it's our garden and we've got a lot of judgments about that, but if it's a wild landscape, it just, there's a certain kind of, it invites this quality of acceptance, of allowing, of, of surrender, of just surrendering into the way it is. So hopefully some of that can rub off on ourselves. Can we see ourselves as a you know, gnarly old oak tree or a you know bent over pine tree or a, you know, who knows what you how you see yourself but can we embrace the the imperfection of our body, of our hearts, our minds? Perfectly imperfect. So one of the more profound things that we can uh, viscerally experience is the um, well understanding or different perceptions about the nature of self. 
in, partly influenced by sensing our interconnection, our interdependence. But also because when we go into a landscape, particularly if we're alone, like you might do when you're meandering here on your own or after the meals, and you're just sitting in the woods by these beautiful aspen trees by the river, and you're lying down on the river bank, and you're just quietly minding your own business, gazing at the clouds, listening to the wind and the river. And, and especially as we deepen in the retreat and our busy mind starts to you know, quieten down a little bit, pause a little bit, we start to, at times, feel a sense of softening of the rigid structure of self. We sometimes a self-forgetting. We the sense of self, you know, just like lying down, looking at those ponderosa trees today. We can just dissolve into that experience of seeing, of surrendering into the earth. Like I'm looking at these clouds feel my attention just absorb into the clouds and the sense of mark is completely absent there's no mark there's just clouds seeing knowing whatever's moving in the heart it's a beautiful flow of experience where the sense of self of me of me watching me doing something me separate from, that just starts to dissolve, erode, soften, vanish for a moment, for some moments, for some minutes, sometimes for hours, just this, just the sense of beingness, naturalness, ordinariness, where we're not caught up in dramas and thoughts and preoccupations and worries about myself and how do I look? and am I welcome and all the ways that we ruminate it's just we're just more sensorily connected alive present and these moments where the sense of self that rigidity that separate structure starts to soften times dissolve very illuminating because it illuminates something about the nature of self. We take ourselves, our personality, or whoever we take ourselves to be, as being very real and solid and who we are and separate with a history and a meaning and a significance and a, all of that. And yet we can have these moments, maybe it's lying in the hammock. We're just, we're just floating away with the clouds. We've lost sense of time. We've lost sense of, sense of um, getting somewhere, doing something, being somebody. And it's just beingness, naturalness, ease, space, peace. One of the things that arises is the sense of self softens and dissolves is spaciousness, peace, freedom, ease, love.
and then you know you're in the hammock and everything's just dissolving into puddles and uh, and then the bell rings and suddenly you're snapped out of that oneness unity experience with clouds and you go from being clouds to <gasps> can't be late for meditation I was late last time and I'm sure the teacher's tracking me and you know gotta look good and and the whole sense of self comes snapping back me myself my social self how I'm perceived time separation anxiety tension and then we realize oh it's the lunch bell ah lunch (laughs) and we just go back into feeling the hammock relax lunch can wait I'm just going to dissolve a little more into the clouds and that sense of self that got so tight can suddenly ah it's like an outbreath. Oh, space. Everything's okay in the world in this moment. As I go to my mind and stories. And so we can see the, the nature of self, this constructed self that we create in our mind with our thoughts and stories and narratives, perceptions. We see how it's actually quite like everything else, surprisingly, not surprisingly, changeable, fluid, dynamic, not permanent, not self-existing, not independent, actually changeable, dependent, impermanent, insubstantial, no permanent fixed reality. And we see how so much of it arises through mind, thoughts, beliefs, views, history. We we maintain this sense of self through rumination, through what neuroscience they call the default mode network, this constant self-talk about ourselves and our social self and about how we fit in and our future and our fears and but when we when that mind quietens down and we're just in our physical sensory experience there's just life doing itself doing its thing self comes and goes Notice what happened. Notice those times when the sense of self is quiet. The mind is quiet. The sense of softening, opening, dissolving. And then at some point, thoughts, whatever, maybe a person walking down the trail brings us back into sort of self, sort of congeal, contract, and then um, we're going to be a few minutes. And then, um, and then the mind comes back and goes, wow, look what I just had. I had this really cool no-self experience. Wow, I was just nobody and everybody at the same time. 
I'm really getting this stuff. I'm getting really good at this meditation Buddhist business. And so we uh, create stories and, 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 and further embellish the sense of self by claiming an experience that was actually nothing to do with us and was selfless. And so that's in the mind. And then we laugh. We see ourselves doing it. We see ourselves telling somebody about how selfless we were. <laughs> and then we catch the irony of that. And we laugh. And then we go back to whatever it was. So pay attention to this, what I, I call the accordion of self expands to the point of dissolution, sometimes snaps back with fear and desire and aversion, and then softens and coalesces and disappears and emerges and part of the fabric of being human. My teacher, who I just spent some lovely time with in England, my first Vipassana teacher, Christopher Titmus when I was talking about having spent a lot of time in India and had some very, very profound openings and sense of himself dissolving and disappearing and then feeling consternation, how it would reconstellate, especially when I came back to England. And, and he said, this beautiful one-liner that he's famous for, he said, freedom allows self and not self to be. Freedom allows self and not self to be. As in freedom, reality makes space for duality and non-duality. Both are true. Both arise in experience. Don't need to make a problem out of either. You just need to bring clarity of awareness when we're in subjective, selfing, dualism world and when we're not. And see how our life flows between those two realities and as we deepen in our practice spend more time in nature <coughs> the sense of the rigid habitual sense of self begins to soften there's more space between the times of contraction habituation this is a short poem from Juan Ramon Jimenez who uh, is a Spanish poet from Huelba, so I was told. I was just in Huelba in Spain. So, and it's perfect that his poem fits this talk. It's called, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and whom at other times I forget. The one who remains silent while I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I am indoors, the one who will remain standing when I die. So many things. Uh, nature practice is illuminating. Changing nature of experience. Interdependent nature of experience. The mortality of experience the selfless nature of experience. There's a line teaching from the Buddha when he was teaching to Bahia. There was an ardent young spiritual seeker 
and uh, he wanted to know the essence of the Buddha's teaching. And the Buddha said, in the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the sensing, there is just the sensing. In the cognizing, there's just the cognizing. When you see things in this way, in the seen, just the seen, in the heard, just the heard, in the sense, just the sense, in the cognized, just the cognized, you will see that You will see that there is no therein, thereby, nor nothing in between. This is the end of suffering. And it's a kind of a, there's a, a certain crypticness to that teaching, but the point that I think is pertinent to what we're doing here is we're coming into uh, the immediacy of experience. Seeing, hearing, sensing, knowing. else is story. Everything else is an elaboration, including how we create sense of self about ourselves, about others, or anything in between. And so, um, so there's something potent and powerful when we let ourselves really attune to the immediacy of experience and let the wisdom of nature inform us, touch us, awaken us. So thank you for your kind attention. More to be said on this matter, but I'm aware that Katie is sitting there with her delicious offerings. <laughs> and she's very keen to ring the bell. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.